0: The consumer who used to buy a $7 bottle of wine now trading up to a $10. The person who bought the $15 now trading up to the $20. The person who used to drink box wine now switching over to a bottle of wine. So premiumization is definitely a big trend. People are constantly trading up for wine for sure and also in spirits.
1: What is up my food marketing peeps? Welcome to episode number 43. On the show today, we have Luke Lehman, who is the field marketing manager for EJ Gallo. And if you're not already familiar, Gallo is the largest producer of wine in the world. They own and distribute a number of the popular wine and spirits brands that you'll see in most liquor and grocery stores, like Barefoot, Apothec, and New Amsterdam Vodka. From being on the front lines to training and managing over 30 salespeople, Luke has spent his entire career in the industry, and he's really starting to make a name for himself. In this episode, you'll learn how to hire and motivate a strong sales team, what's a recipe for success when it comes to in-store marketing, what trends are emerging in the wine and spirits industry, and plenty more. So, let's go hang with Luke. Welcome to the Food Marketing Nerds Podcast, where we talk marketing, branding, and social media with the smartest minds in the business. Here's your host, Alex Osterly. So Luke, thanks so much for joining us on the show.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: You and I go way back, so I already know your story, but for our listeners who may not know much about you yet, can you give us a little bit of your background and tell us about yourself and how you made it to your current role?
0: Yeah, sure. Uh, I went to University of Colorado uh, in Boulder. Go bus. Um, and when I, yeah. When I uh, graduated, uh, I was recruited by Ian J. Winery out of California. My first position with them was as a sales rep in Oklahoma City. So I made the big move from Boulder to Oklahoma City, Um, worked there for about a year and a half, two years, and then moved into one of their distributors as a sales manager in Arizona, working for Alliance Beverage, is what it was called, and then got promoted within Alliance Beverage to become the division manager. Um, So then managing the sales managers uh, for the state of Arizona for our distributor. And then just recently in the last two months, um, took over the field marketing manager role for... Gallo back on the supplier side in Arizona.
1: So just the the difference between the distributors and the the supplier side it, it's it's a little more complex than what I'm used to as far as whether it's supply chain or distribution goes. Can you tell us a little bit more about Gallo and how you guys are set up?
0: Yeah, so I'll just give you a quick background on the the distribution system and kind of I was talking about how I've gone from supplier to distributor. In, in the U.S., there's a three tier distribution system for alcohol. It's a way for the government to really monitor and regulate alcohol. It started in 1933 after Prohibition. So there's there's like a supplier, you know, the person who basically creates the wine or the spirits, the alcohol, and then they have to go through a distributor who then ships the product to the retailer who sends it to the end consumer. So when I was working with Gallo now, I'm working with the supplier. Um, and when I was with Alliance Beverage, now called Breakthrough Beverage, it's actually the distributor. So... Within the alcohol industry, people a lot of times bounce back and forth between the distributor and the supplier, and it's a really close relationship between the two.
1: And so if you're producing your own, whether it's a liquor brand or producing your own own wine brand, you so you have to go through a distributor. You can't go direct to store?
0: Right. Yeah, that's correct. So even if, if you created your own um, Alex's wine brand, you couldn't just go to uh, the store down the street and sell it. You'd have to go through a distributor.
1: That's interesting. So how does that provide a layer of whether it's surveillance or the government being able to, to monitor as opposed to going direct to, direct to store?
0: Yeah, so there's only um, you know, a few major distributors within each state, so there's you know, a few hundred, a few thousand suppliers that they would have to monitor versus when you have to go through a distributor, then they really only have to monitor those distributors, those few distributors, and it's a lot easier to manage. Interesting,
1: and so can you describe the scale of Gallo?
0: Yeah. Gallo is the biggest wine company in the world. They started California, started in 1933, right after prohibition. Um, so we have been around a long time and we have about 80 unique different brands of wine and spirits. So when you hear Gallo, I mean, we have a Gallo family that you see on the shelves, but there's also a lot of brands like Apothic and Barefoot and Rossi and Mirosu and a lot of others that um, they don't have the Gallo name on them. But um, if you go into a liquor store. Here in Arizona, where I am, about 30% of all the wine on the shelf actually comes from us, from Gallo. And it just might be underneath a different name and not say Gallo on it.
1: So from a production standpoint, I'm curious, what's the difference between a box of, say, a Franzia or Yellowtail versus a bottle of, say, Silver Oak?
0: Um, yeah, there's a lot of different factors that go into it. At, at the core of wine, it's, it's, a, it's kind of a farming industry. So it's where the grapes were actually grown. And the way that they're harvested is, is a big part of it. So, like on a box wine, you could have grapes come from anywhere in California or anywhere really in the US. Um, blend them together and you know machine harvest them versus a higher end wine comes from a very specific area. you know, from Napa Valley or Sonoma, if you're talking about silver oak comes from from Napa from a very small area. It's all about the climate, the temperature outside, the the date di- that changes between night and day. Um, they call it the terroir, so it's basically all the elements that that make up the climate of an area, the soil and everything else that that makes an area a good wine-growing area. So when you find it, when you're buying a good wine, you want it from a smaller, more uh, localized place rather than you know one that just says California, and they could they could pull the groups from anywhere.
1: You correct me if I'm wrong. If it it's not Somalia, it's certified specialist of wine. That's you. Yeah. You got your certification. Right. Can you tell our, our listeners just a little bit more about that certification and, and what it entails to actually get that?
0: Yeah. So Certified Specialist of Wine is a, uh, a certification in the, the wine and spirits industry that's, that's um, done through the Society of Wine Educators. So um, it's a test, and I actually took it about three or four years ago. And basically, it is a certification that you can put out your name so people know that you're speaking their language and that you understand kind of what's going on in the wine world um, that you are a specialist within the industry. That basic test is is a multiple choice test um, versus, you know, a sommelier. The other side of it covers a lot more tasting and serving of alcohol and wine. So the, the certified specialist of wine that I got, there's one more level. It's the certified wine educator, um, which is a, an exam where you have um, multiple choice questions, short answer, a fault tasting, a varietal tasting where you have different wine varietals in front of you and you have to... Um, Taste each one and identify which ones they are, and then in an essay portion.
1: And so that, that essentially qualifies you. It's it's on a similar scale, I guess, a similar ranking of sommelier, just a different category.
0: Right, just different entity that that qualifies you as a specialist versus a sommelier.
1: Now, kind of back to the the question about the the production of the different qualities of of these wines, and I know. Wine is a pretty unique category of its own, and you've got lines that are, are, are produced from a, a mass scale standpoint that are in the 8 to $20 range that are available nearly everywhere in every liquor store or grocery store you walk into, depending on the state. And then you have the very high-end, the $50, $100, $100 bottles and up items, and they're all in the same portfolio a lot of times, at least from my understanding. So is that difficult to, to manage on the sales side?
0: Um, yeah, it is. and you know, kind of what we've done, um, you have different business units within within the company. So, you know, I cover um, all of them in Arizona, but we also have a special fine wine team. So when you go into a liquor store, a grocery store, where you're selling fine wine, a lot of times, you know, they want to see a salesperson who's very knowledgeable on fine wine. You know, the same person that comes in selling their $4 bottle of wine, um, they don't necessarily want to listen to that person if they're trying to sell them a $100 bottle of wine. So what we do with the sales force is we do have um, specialized people who are fine wine specialists versus a spirit specialist versus just a, a generalist who would sell in you know any kind any kind of wine. But there's a lot of credibility that go- comes with either you know your CSW or your sommelier, and um, when when people know that you have that, then they know that you have the ability to to speak their language and you know what you're talking about when it comes to wine.
1: So uh, from a, a training standpoint, since you've been on the the management side of these sales teams. What does the, the training look like for someone who's a, a generalist or uh, s- selling just a, a usual Gallo line that's maybe not on the higher end versus the the high-end team?
0: So everyone gets the, the same sales training, you know, whether you're going to be selling the high-end stuff or the low-end stuff, you get the same basic Gallo sales training, which most people that, that we have come into the company in the industry don't know anything about line as I didn't at all when I, when I first started. And as we always say, you try to recruit people who have the sales ability, but we can teach them about wine. You know, you can learn, you can read about it, um, you can train them on online, but the the sales training is, is pretty rigorous, especially within the, the distributor partners and Gallo. You'll get, you get a territory when you first start off as a sales rep and you basically go through 10 days with your manager every single day, you know, in the field, calling on stores, learning the ins and outs, and then another eight week training program that, you um, It's very much in the field, though. They kind of throw you in, give you a territory, and train you as you go.
1: And from just a high level, what does that sales process look like? Is it you're teaching them how to maybe find areas where there is opportunity for upselling? Is it how to cold call uh, or walk into a a liquor store or grocery store that you don't actually sell in already? I guess, what does that look like from a high level?
0: Yeah, from a high level standpoint. So, like when I walk into a store now, um, as a field marketing manager in Arizona, we evaluate the store in five key areas. So when we're looking at wine in a store. First of all, is distribution. So is the wine in the store? Have you sold it in the distribution? So is it on the shelf? The second is is shelf. So shelf positioning. So um, you know, if you're the industry leader, you don't necessarily want somebody sliding into the right of you. Um, and if you're you're attacking the industry leader, then you know you want to slide in next to them. The third is a cold box. So if you go shop at a grocery store, one of the best real estate spots is the cold box because that's where people are having impulse purchases on their way to the register, and so that's a that's a high uh, highly sought after area is a cold box. And so the
1: cold box is the what is the cold box?
0: Yeah, it's a refrigerated section uh, within like the grocery store or liquor store. Got it. And then the fourth is displays. So when you walk into a liquor store, a grocery store that sells wine or beer, then um, there's there's a big display. That's how we also evaluate stores. Um, and the final is pricing and, and the um, point of sale that you put on, whether it's the pricing or on the shelf. So five key areas that we look at when we walk into a store is to evaluate how it's going. Distribution, shelf, cold box, displays, and then pricing and POS.
1: Now from, from your experience throughout your career, it- sounds like you've handled some of the, the in-store marketing and the, the display aspect of it all. So can you speak to that point a little further?
0: The biggest way to, to increase sales and in-store level, a lot of times once you have the distribution and the right spot on the shelf is then selling in the, the big display, the, the large amounts of cases. You get a lot more impulse purchases and you can usually give the retailer a lower price um, if they buy in a, a large amount of cases, which helps you get more movement and sell more product. So in-store uh, marketing, there's a lot of different things you can do on, on the shelf. We have what we call shelf talkers. If you walk into a store and see ratings and accolades and um, certain critics on the wines, there's also radio ads in stores a lot of times, um, a lot of philanthropy partnerships. And then you know different things in stores that we do for marketing is floor stickers, uh, racks, coupons, uh, different banners, that sort of thing. Um, but it's very highly competitive and, and, and can be highly regulated in a lot of ways. Every state's different, but you can't give them a certain amount of a of dollar amount in their store. So if you give them a $300 rack, then you might be maxed out for the year, and you can't give them um, anything else for the year. Interesting. So
1: it's a basically a limit on the amount of, of discounts that you can give, depending on yes, the state?
0: Yes, it's limited on the amount of uh, promo goods that you can give them um, in their store. Yeah. Hmm. every state creates their own laws. So it's, it's a different amount and a different rule in every, every uh, state.
1: That's interesting. I guess that protects the the smaller guys from, from getting basically just blood out from the, the larger guys who can just discount and discount and discount until, until, other people can't compete.
0: Yep, exactly. So
1: in your experience, is there a general recipe for success when it comes to in-store displays or, or the marketing that you're mentioning?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, it's all about location um, as far as in-store displays go. So When you walk into a a liquor store or a uh, grocery store, the the prime spots, you know, are are, the way we look at it is the way that you walk the store. So it's um, the lobby spot when you first walk in. And then when most people shop the store, they shop the perimeter. So we look at the store the way that a shopper looks at it. You come in and you go to the right. Most people walk the perimeter. If you're talking about a grocery store, they'll hit uh, the meat section and the cheese. So those are prime spots to be in. If you're talking about a liquor store like in Colorado then you're talking about the front spot the lobby spot and then you know counter and register spots where there's a lot of high pause um, and high traffic areas is what you're looking for
1: interesting you just described my trip to the grocery store to a tee so (laughs) a grocery store and a liquor store can only have so much square footage and so much signage and display so how does one convince a liquor store or grocery store to to use the in-store marketing that you provide them
0: A lot of different ways and also very different in different states. So in Arizona, about 85% of all the wines sold in retail is through um, grocery chains versus Colorado. It's uh, 100% liquor stores and every chain can have only one license. So if you're talking about Arizona, convincing them to use your marketing in the store, a lot of it is done by an account manager at a national level who has a buyer and sells in the marketing elements, and then the sales rep will come in and execute on those elements and make sure that they're up. And if you're talking about Colorado, uh, where it's independent liquor stores, it's a little bit different where the sales rep can go in. And basically, it's all about building a relationship with that store. And then, you know, that's kind of usually how you convince them how to use your marketing versus somebody else's.
1: And so it's it's fairly relationship based, especially given that there is a set limit on, on how much Schwag or promotional offers that you can provide depending on the state sounds like
0: right yeah definitely very relationship-based industry
1: and so how how different are these laws and and why are they so different from state to state
0: yeah you know it's kind of crazy in in arizona we have um kroger which is is fries and it's called king supers in colorado it's um a huge chain that has 130 stores so all 130 of their stores can have liquor licenses and they can sell you know as, as much as they want in all those stores and they have one warehouse that we ship you know thousands of cases to every day and then they ship to their own individual stores so when they, they buy into their warehouse they can buy at a really low price and they, they distrib- distribute out to their own stores so that's different versus other states like, like colorado and some other control control states that the distributor ships directly to them but they can't buy at the same quantity deal level that the large chains can when they own multiple licenses. So they usually get a higher price than what you would from a chain store.
1: Interesting. So it sounds like not only are the laws different in what you can, how you can interact or, or work with the the marketing teams of these different liquor stores or the owners, but the distribution is completely separate as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So do you know why the, the laws themselves are so different from state to state?
0: Yeah. So it's really, it all goes back to 1933 after prohibition. And there was a lot of control on the alcohol industry as they, they came out and legalized alcohol. And each state, they gave states the, the power to control the, the liquor laws. And each one has just kind of decided as they've gone along, you know, how much control they're going to give away and, and what they're going to open up. And it's one of the trends in the industry right now is more and more states are going to opening up the, the market to be able to sell in grocery stores and be able to sell on Sunday and that sort of thing. So it's it's really, it's funny when you go to different states and you see the way that alcohol is sold. It's very fragmented and different no matter where you go.
1: Are distributors, do they have offices in and territories in different states?
0: Yeah. And that's actually another industry trend is uh, consolidation. So the distributor here in Arizona has 13 different states that they distribute in. They're called Breakthrough Beverage. There's The, the largest one in, in the U.S. is called Southern Glaciers, and they're in like 40-some states right now. So even though they, they operate within that many states, every single state still has those different laws, and they have to operate a different way. But it's definitely something that's going on in the industry right now is that the distributors, the suppliers, and the retailers are all kind of consolidating more and more so. So, Southern Glazers, the biggest distributor in the US, used to be two companies, used to be Southern Glazers, and they recently merged last year. And the other two largest um, distributors are Republic, National Distributing Company, and then Breakthrough Beverage. And Breakthrough Beverage used to be uh, Charmer Sunbelt and Warts, and they merged in the last two years also. So, a lot of consolidation going on, and there's a lot of definitely uh, distributors operating in multiple states.
1: Interesting. What is the the economic driver behind all these consolidations?
0: Kind of speaks like another trend happening in in the alcohol industry is um, it it gives them the ability to have national account managers. It gives them the ability to have um, you know, as I was talking about Kroger, have a a account manager or a person inside Kroger who can sell on a program or a wine, and it goes to you know all forty states where they operate. So then they they're really only paying one person for all these distributions where. Back in the day, it used to be everyone would have to go into each individual store by themselves and sell in each wine, where you can make a pitch now and sell in, you know, a thousand distributions to different stores.
1: Well, much more efficient. Yeah. So, kind of speaking on that topic of trends, and I know being on the ground level, setting pricing, et cetera, you probably have some pretty good insights that, I mean, you probably have the the first take at, at what's going on for these emerging trends. Is there, can you speak to that a little bit as far as? any other trends that you're starting to see in, in Wine and Spirits?
0: Yeah. One big trend that we're starting to see is uh, premiumization. So people starting to trade up on their wines. The consumer who used to buy a $7 bottle of wine now trading up to a $10. person who bought the $15 now trading up to the $20. Um, the person who used to drink box wine now switching over to a bottle of wine. So Premiumization is definitely a, a big trend. People are constantly trading up for wine, for sure, and also in spirits. So, you know, just my company has gone from about 15 years ago, premium wine wasn't even a, a big portion. It was about five percent of the company, and you know, we're hoping for about 40 percent of our revenue this year to come from premium wine. So, wow. um, it's happening with us for sure. Premiumization, but also within within the industry.
1: I wonder if that is something to do with generation, the way the generations are coming to age, and uh, millennials, our generation, is definitely maturing into their prime spending years. So uh, I'm curious if it's that, or if it's more of a, a societal shift of indulging more. It's interesting.
0: Yeah, I think it's definitely a little bit of both, and, and part of the challenge, or one of the things we like to do though, is also educating educating people on you know what is a premium wine. I think a lot of times people are intimidated when they go to the grocery store and buy wine because they don't know anything about it. So, you know, just something easy educating people on, you know, this region is a good region. This one is a more generic area, that sort of thing to give people confidence to be able to trade up. Um, something that we've been working on. I think that's, that's part of what's, what's driving is people becoming a little more educated on, on their wine knowledge.
1: And when it comes to the education piece, what mediums are you using to actually educate the consumers?
0: Yeah, so there's a lot of uh, a lot of in-store stuff that we do now, both from from the shelf, just just shelf talker sort of things, and then there's a lot of like scan codes that we do that, that lead to a website that you can read about the region, that sort of thing, um, and then a lot of social media. So you know, social media linking up to the brand websites that you can see, you know, where the wine is from or the history of it and where it's produced
1: interesting so these scan codes are they typically qr codes like snapchat codes
0: yeah there's they are some qr codes but what's what's more used is um text text codes so you know text whatever wine to this number and it will send you a link then that you can read about the wine interesting
1: do you know do you have a general idea around what the conversion rate on those the text to find out concept uh, is? you
0: know i'm not sure on what the conversion rate is It's interesting though
1: it's yeah i think qr codes are really interesting that they're just they somewhat failed, but I feel like they're kind of making a, a comeback a little bit. I've still never scanned a QR code, not out of my actual curiosity, more just to see what a company is is trying to trying to pull with a QR code. So we'll, we'll see.
0: Yeah, QR codes are uh, they're funny because even if, you know our generation doesn't do it, and like I've I've done the same thing where it's like oh it's a QR code like let me let me scan it and like oh man I got wait I haven't downloaded the app like now I got to go into it, uh, just like take take just a little bit too much time I think for. For an impatient generation to uh, to scan the actual QR code.
1: Yeah, I think the the text text to find out more I think is is the way to go because it seems less intrusive. It's like where uh, I I have a chance to another filter to decide whether I want to actually click through a link or if it, and if you just scan a QR code you're going directly to a website and then you get retargeted. But right. Uh, so, kind of, kind of to that point of, of these in-store initiatives and, and social media, I know before the call, we mentioned the, the recent ad campaign that you've, you guys are launching around New Amsterdam Vodka. Can you speak to that a little bit?
0: June 1st, we launched um, a new campaign for New Amsterdam Vodka. It's based around some digital and some TV advertising. Um, it's going to be over you know $10 million campaign. The very first launch was on the first game of the NBA Finals. I ran a New Amsterdam commercial on ABC. And then we're going to continue to kind of hit it as a 360 marketing campaign from ESPN. We're going to be doing TV commercials. We did a YouTube takeover. So we were the banner ad on YouTube on June 2nd, um, on June 3rd. Then we did a, a Snapchat takeover. Hmm. So we had a Snapchat filter. And then throughout the, the finals for the NBA, you'll see new Amsterdam commercials running.
1: It sounds like the target demographic is very uh, sports sports focused. Male, sounds like.
0: Yeah, that's kind of what we're going after with this campaign. But vodka in general is not necessarily not necessarily male-focused, but what we're going for on this campaign called Pour Your Soul Out was based around more male-dominated.
1: So I know having been on the, the selling side of uh, getting a, a brand on Snapchat, the demographic of its user base is, is fairly young. So do you know what the, the process was or what the, the thought process behind Targeting a vodka on a platform that skews a bit younger?
0: Um, no, actually, not necessarily sure why, why they went with that. We have a brand team, um, the New Amsterdam brand team out of Modesto, that handled that to make that decision, and then kind of my job is to implement it here in Arizona in the market.
1: Yeah, I think I think it's brilliant that it's a completely underutilized space for for brands, and yeah, depending on how it's executed. I think it's a a great place for any brand to be, but yeah, I was I was just curious, but uh, yeah, you're starting to see more and more of the the progressive and forward thinking brands on on Snapchat with paid and with organic.
0: It's, it's like a kind of a running joke that in every single marketing you know meeting we have millennials come up. It's, <laughs> it's there's no way to do it, like avoid it. You know, it's almost just like a you know we all kind of smile when we, we say it, but we can't get through one meeting talking about marketing without mentioning millennials.
1: <laughs> and it, why is that in the industry?
0: Uh, I mean, it's definitely, it's just the target demographic. I mean, especially if you can, if you can get, you know, it's the same as a lot of products, but you can get uh, millennials hooked on something early. You know, if you can get somebody who's 21 to 35 hooked on it now, um, the idea is that they'll be a, a consumer for the rest of their lives, but also they're, they're trendsetters. So when you're talking about wine and spirits. If they see somebody who's drinking a certain wine, who's maybe younger and, more trend setting than, than somebody else might start drinking that if they see them, them drinking that.
1: And uh, kind of to that same point, one of our discussions outside of the podcast was the increase in sales in rosé.
0: Yeah.
1: So when, I guess, when did you see that spike in rosé and what, what do you think is causing that?
0: Rosé trend is kind of a crazy one. um uh, started depending on what part of the country you're in, it started maybe four or five years ago and maybe it's just starting now if you're in other areas of the country. It really started in, in the Northeast doing and This is the way it happens a lot of times with, with wine in the industry is it starts on premise, so bars and restaurants. Um, became very popular in the Northeast in bars and restaurants and then uh, it just kind of migrated its way west and into retail stores and You look at the the shelf sets in a liquor store, and you used to have maybe three rosés, and now you'll have 30 or 40 rosés, so it's it's a really strong trend, and and one of the the most, um, the the, the biggest uh, areas that rosé is doing a really good job in is is in uh, Provence. Uh, It's a dry style rosé. It's like a true uh, French rosé, so that's um, one of the biggest regions that's been really hot in rosé.
1: Hmm, Interesting. Now I know career-wise you haven't been in the industry for that long compared to I'm sure a lot of people in the industry, but have you seen out the life of a, a trend like this before?
0: Um, trying to think of something on this scale, you know I can think of a few products that we've launched that have run their cycle. There's uh, there's one that we had called Vinique. It was uh, a vodka and moscato shimmery sort of thing, and we. It was a big trend, um, you know, in bars and nightclubs and and New Year's that sort of thing, and it was kind of a flash in the pan, and then now now it's going away. So, yeah, I've seen it. I've seen a few things rotate through like that, but rose seems to have some staying power. Another another example is that, that a lot of millennials would probably know is uh, Fireball, yeah, you know, on the yeah. side. Mm-hmm. So Fireball had been around actually for a long time, um, underneath a different name, and then they they just kind of blew up and now they're kind of um, tapering off and it'll, it'll be interesting to see if they stay around or if they just kind of, kind of fall off.
1: Yeah. It's interesting. I was just trying to think if, if someone who's listening to this is saying, Oh, maybe I'll uh, Rosé is hot right now. Maybe I'll jump in and try to create my own Rosé. Sounds a lot, a lot more difficult than I would want to take on myself, but yeah. it's, it's,
0: it's funny with wine too. It takes a long time. So you got to think about the time it takes to grow the grapes. It takes three to four years to, if you're going from the very beginning, from planting a vine to getting yieldable fruit and harvesting it and then fermenting it, and it, it takes a long time. So if you're not up with the, the current trends, if you're behind it, um, by the time you start right now starting to get into a trend, you can be way behind and the trend could be gone by the time you produce your wine.
1: Yeah. So it sounds like to actually get in on one of these trends, either you have to be have already been producing it or have the, the infrastructure and scale to make a, a quick tweak to, yep, exactly. Or relatively quick, in the wine industry. Exactly. Now, kind of changing gears just a little bit. I know that one of your big responsibilities has been to to hire and train these sales teams. Yep. So, what do you look for in a good salesperson?
0: Lots of different things. One of the biggest things I look for though is somebody who can push through adversity. So, whether that's you know a difficult buyer or you know a down month, the way that somebody is able to push through adversity is going to say a lot about what they're going to be able to do um, on the sales team. So that's really one of the number th- one things I look for, but also there's a lot of different things. Per- um, we look for a lot is leadership. You know, we, we promote within very quickly, so um, do you have leadership capabilities? Have you managed a team before? Do you, you know, even if you were recruiting at a college, were you the person who was the captain of your team? Were you um, the person in your groups who was the, the group leader, that sort of thing? Um, and then the sales personality, really. Just sit down, and was what I like to do in interviews too, is just sit down and say, okay, could I talk to this person for an hour? If I was on a flight from LA to New York, could I talk to this person and have a genuine conversation with them for that amount of time?
1: Now, when you're testing or hiring for adversity, being able to to get through adversity, what what do you look for? Is that something that you find in the resume, or how do you how do you pre-qualify somebody for their ability to get through adversity?
0: Really, it's, it's uh, more than a resume. It's a uh, it's a question. Um, the question I always like to ask is. You know give me a difficult situation and and how you overcame it, that sort of thing, and it you know the situation doesn't really matter as much as their answer you know it can be a very small situation, but if there's somebody who would push through and you can see that um, then that's what you look for
1: so is it, once the the sales team has been hired, is there anything that you do to motivate your team or is it more finding the right people who will motivate themselves?
0: yeah I know it's uh I mean it's both, so you want somebody who's self motivated definitely, but a big part of my job is setting. Um, setting incentives for the sales force um, and and really being you know kind of the raw raw person for the state for for my supplier. Yeah, there's there's different incentives based on you know the amount of cases you sell in the distributions you get in the displays that sort of thing that I set um, for the sales team in Arizona. Is there anything
1: speaking from personal experience that you any incentive or type of incentive that you've seen to to motivate people the most?
0: Yeah. Um, so I really like doing trips. We do a lot of like winery trips, things out to uh, to California, um, that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, a, a big driver is always money, right? So how much, uh, how many dollars per case are they going to get, that sort of thing. But the biggest thing also is pitting people kind of, you know, against each other in sales, right? So having a leaderboard of um, this is where everyone's at and driving competition is a big part of it.
1: Are there any deal breakers when it comes to a, a sales interview when you are trying to make the right decision on somebody?
0: Really, the ability to just sit down and have a conversation. Um, if the conversation is difficult, if it's, if it's me constantly trying to pull things out from them, if I feel like I have to you know, keep the conversation going rather than them, you know, that's kind of a red flag to me that if you're in front of a buyer, if you're in a sales pitch and you can't hold somebody's attention, then you're not necessarily going to be a good salesperson.
1: Yeah, that that definitely makes sense, especially with the the industry being so relationship based. We have a few questions that we ask each of our guests. Are there any? I, I know managing a bunch of different different people on your team, plus all the other responsibilities that you have on a day to day basis. Are there any productivity hacks that you use from day to day just to get your get your work done?
0: Uh, I mean, the biggest thing for me is I write everything down. So I've got a notebook that I carry, and it's funny you'll see whether I'm in a, a store or it, in my office or whatever. I've got a notebook, I write everything down. I write everything down a notebook, and then I also got, the, uh, we're very much calendar based, so if it's not on the iCloud calendar, then it may basically will not exist. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of how everything works. And it's, it's funny, even in between distributors or meeting anybody else, everyone just kind of knows if, if you want somebody to actually show up to a meeting, you better have it on their calendar. <laughs>
1: What's the the best piece of career advice that you've you've ever been given?
0: I had a uh, my favorite professor at CU actually. He was the he was the former CMO of Coors. You know, I met with him a lot for for career advice, and one of the things he always said was there's three reasons why you should take a job or stay with your job, and most people only get two of these. So if you can get all three of these reasons, then you're doing really well and you're you're in a great position for yourself. Three reasons though were were money. Um, are you making the money that you want want to? Two is, are you growing yourself and obtaining new skills or knowledge? Um, they're gonna get you to where you wanna be or are you constantly growing? And then three, are you enjoying it? Do you love actually showing up to work every single day? So, um, most people only get two of those and some people only get one, but if you can get all three of those things, then you know you should either take the job or stay with the job that you're at because those are the, the, the three most important things.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's definitely sound advice. So if you could go back in time to teach your yourself something right as you're starting your your career, what would that be?
0: I'd probably tell myself or teach myself that it's it's never too soon for an idea. I think starting out, I felt like I was a big a part of a big company that kind of had it all figured out, but in reality, you know every good idea starts somewhere and oftentimes the best ideas or insights come from people, you know, at the bottom of the totem pole or people just starting out or young people. Um, that's something I didn't necessarily realize when I very first started speaking out early is, is, is never too soon for a good idea.
1: Hmm. That's good advice. And it, I think it, it's definitely so from people in your position now to, to foster that kind of, of environment where people feel that their creativity or their ideas are, are worthwhile and worth, worth telling people at least. So,
0: yeah, absolutely. I think it's something definitely, we're definitely fostered. I didn't, you know, realize when I was, when i very first starting out that, that, uh, your idea is super valuable, especially if you're your sales rep who's in, in the stores every day and you have, you have the best knowledge of anybody of what's going on and different trends.
1: Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Luke. And where's the best place for, for people to find out more about Gallo and, and what you guys have going on?
0: Honestly, probably just the uh, website, njgallo.com is the best place to look. And you can see our portfolio, history, you know everything about the company um, right there.
1: Awesome, well thanks again, Luke. Great, thanks a lot, Alex.
0: Thanks for listening
1: to the Food Marketing Nerds Podcast. For interview transcripts or to download your free social media ebook, check out foodmarketingnerds.com.